the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. In addition to covering the day's news, we're going to hear from Gregory Jantz. Dr. Jantz is the author of So Much to Live For. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Starting off with some of the day's news, Loudoun County parents are demanding the superintendent and school board resign after the sexual assault email that was uncovered. Parents demanded resignations from the school board, the superintendent, Scott Zeigler, at a school board meeting on Tuesday, citing an email that surfaced last week. Well, in that email, Ziegler alerted the board to a report of an alleged sexual assault in a girl's restroom in May, about a month before he publicly declared that he had no record of the restroom assault. You have buried a sexual assault to protect your precious 80-40 policy, one of the grandmothers of Loudoun County children uh, said, accusing the school board referencing a pro-transgender policy. Every last one of you resign. You uh, just had hundreds of Loudoun County students walk out in protest because they feel unsafe in school. Another local mom, Aaron Smith, said, did any of you even respond to this email on May the 28th from Dr. Ziegler? Was that email alarming to anyone? Well, Smith also addressed school board uh, chair Brenda Sheridan, who suggested that parents' complaints are focused on the state's November 2nd gubernatorial election. We are not here to impact elections, Brenda, she said, pledging that parents will keep coming back after the election. Get comfy, comfy because we are not going away. On the Alec Baldwin Rust movie shooting, the district attorney says criminal charges are on the table and didn't eliminate anyone from that possibility. The accidental shooting on the set of the upcoming Western film Rust could result in criminal charges, according to a New Mexico district attorney. Mary Carmack Atwise of the state's first district told the New York Times that authorities haven't ruled out anything when it comes to the future of the case. Well, last Thursday, actor Alec Baldwin was rehearsing a scene for a film on a ranch near Santa Fe when he discharged a firearm he was reportedly told was a cold a weapon or unloaded. A projectile from the gun struck and ultimately killed the cinematographer and the director was uh, also wounded but has since been released from a hospital. Everything at this point, including criminal charges, is on the table. The attorney said it reminded or rather it remained unclear on Tuesday what was loaded into the gun at the time of the shooting. And the district attorney said the authorities were focused on ballistics to determine what was loaded into the gun. According to The Times, the firearm was handed to Baldwin by Rust Assistant Director Dave Halls, who believes the gun was cold, meaning he believed it contained no form of ammunition or blanks. He obviously was mistaken and didn't check the gun to make certain. In other news, the Washington Post hit Terry McAuliffe with four Pinocchios for wildly inflating Virginia's coronavirus numbers. Democratic Virginia gubernatorial candidate uh, McAuliffe repeated false statements about the number of coronavirus cases and hospitalizations in the state. It came to a head on Tuesday as the Washington Post awarded him its worst possible falsehood rating of four Pinocchios. The pandemic will continue to be a serious policy challenge for the next Virginia governor, but there's no reason for McAuliffe to hype the numbers. He earns four Pinocchios. 
Pinocchios, they wrote. Uh, the Post resident fact checker Glenn Kessler, after outlining each instance, McAuliffe repeated the false figures. He offers wild inflated figures for child hospitalization, suggesting again that there were daily figures and claiming twice uh, that these many children were in ICUs. Instead, he appears to be citing a figure for all of the children hospitalized with COVID-19 in Virginia over the last 19 months, which is still inflated. In speaking about the threat of the coronavirus to the state, McAuliffe frequently touts numbers, often wrong numbers, about the impact on children. Kessler went on to write, when we first queried the McAuliffe campaign about the figures, we were told it was a slip of the tongue. Okay, we understand that. And so we passed on a fact check. But then his tongue kept slipping. Well, Kessler wrote that the Post first became interested in McAuliffe's numbers on the 28th of September when he claimed during the gubernatorial debate against the Republican businessman Glenn Youngkin that there were 8,000 new coronavirus cases in Virginia that previous day. He then repeated the claim the following day and again on October 7th during a radio interview. McAuliffe continued to make the false claim about the number of children in ICU beds as well as the number of new coronavirus cases in the state outside of weekend numbers on multiple occasions over the following weeks. In other developments, President Biden briefly stumbled during a speech at the McAuliffe rally. Hillary Clinton, uh, her running mate, her former running mate, Tim Kaine, compared Virginia's Youngkin to January 6th rioters during a McAuliffe rally. Politicians are often given to hyperbole. McAuliffe dances on stage next to President Biden and the Internet uh, chimes in. Needless to say, they were less than flattering. I just think there ought to be a law. Politicians generally speaking, should not dance in public. I mean, you're free to dance with your wife at a private party. But please, when you're being filmed to a national before a national audience, just resist. You know, we've got those signs all over uh, the Portland area. Resist. It ought to apply to this. This is one thing that we all can agree on. Politicians ought to resist dancing in public there. I've said it. I'll move on. Well, Britt Hume has suggested a McAuliffe defeat will be seen as a political earthquake for Democrats heading into the midterms. And the president echoed candidate McAuliffe's claim that Youngkin wants to ban books. He actually doesn't want to ban books. But, you know, when you're a politician, you can you can just stay, say stuff. Well, Mitch McConnell joined former President Trump in uh, backing Herschel Walker in Georgia's 2022 GOP Senate primary. And NBC News op-ed accuses Senator Cinema of pushing negative bisexual stereotypes like being greedy and unreliable. The so-called kissing disease, you know, mononucleosis among teenagers, may trigger multiple sclerosis later in life. So mom and dad, you might want to add that to your arsenal of don't do this because of that. Uh, The so-called mononucleosis, the kissing disease, could in fact result in uh, or trigger multiple sclerosis later in life. Hmm. Well, three people were accidentally given COVID-19 vaccines at a military base. I don't know how that happens. You accidentally give a COVID vaccination. But that's apparently what happened. President Biden's spending bill includes $500 billion toward climate action, according to the president's chief of staff. Hasn't passed yet. And the president's leaving tomorrow for that summit. Uh, Mr. Manchin, his uh, debt confesses a... um, A debt ceiling hike through budget reconciliation is the Dems responsibility. And Senate Democrats released a corporate minimum tax proposal for the spending bill. President Biden released his administration's gender equity plan that calls for eliminating cash bail, among other things. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll return and we'll continue 
take a look at the news. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Did you know the Portland Singing Christmas Tree is back? It's back and it's going to be big, really big. Okay, I might be exaggerating just a bit, but you can win tickets to see the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. The 59th year holiday tradition will be performing six times at Sunset Presbyterian Church, November 27th, mark that down, through December 5th. Uh, Well, I have an opportunity to be a soloist along with former Miss America Katie Harmon and Timothy Greenwich on November 27th at 2 o'clock. Now through Friday, October 31st, you can enter to win a family four-pack of tickets at kpdq.com. Now, more details about how about the show at kpdq.com. And again, we're giving away a family four-pack for the performance on um, November the 27th, the 2 o'clock uh, p.m. afternoon performance. So I hope you can join us. It's going to be it's going to be big. It's going to be really big. Okay, an FDA panel voted 17 to zero to start giving vaccines to young children. The panel member, Dr. Eric Rubin, called the vaccine pretty safe in one article. Well, that is so reassuring. You should rush out right now because it's pretty safe. Anyway, in a separate uh, interview, um, said we're never going to learn about how safe the vaccine is until we start giving it. Once again, just real reassurance there. We don't really know, but once, you know, you give them to your kids, they may or may not fare well. Carol Markowitz says, got to say not a um, comforting comment uh, doesn't make me want to run right out and get it for my kids for some reason. I, I don't understand her reluctance there. Anyway, the number of Americans stranded in Afghanistan still gets a little uh, gets little to no coverage. Ed Morrissey points out the good news. ABC is Escalated coverage of those abandoned in the Afghanistan collapse and crying out for rescue. The not so good news the family ABC chose for this segment comes from India. Their description of Taliban rule is a living hell. It's compelling. But what happened to the Americans abandoned by the administration? This total now is 439 American citizens still in Afghanistan. It's up from the 363 the State Department had told congressional staff just last week, which itself was up from the estimated roughly 100 the administration had said in September. Well, at a press briefing on Friday, State Department spokesman Ned Price said that the number of Americans who actually wished to leave was at one point below 100, but was now between 100 and 200 amid a fluid situation on the ground. I'm not quite sure what to believe. I think I I believe the FDA on the kids shot a bit more than these numbers that we're getting. Senator Blackburn introduced a bill to protect essential workers from being fired over vaccine mandates. The Republican senator rolled out a measure Tuesday that would protect essential workers from being fired due to the federal COVID-19 vaccine mandates, making them exempt from the president's executive order with layoffs and resignations from workers across different industries due uh, to their unwillingness to receive the coronavirus vaccine being fired. Well, the bill comes after the president signed an executive order this summer requiring that all workers in the executive branch be vaccinated against COVID-19. The president also signed an order to require businesses with more than 100 workers to mandate coronavirus vaccines. Town Hall writes, it has received endorsements from the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, the National Border Patrol Council, the National Sheriff's Association, the National Association of Small Trucking Companies, and many other workers groups who embrace the idea of freedom. Terry McAuliffe calls teachers the true heroes of this COVID crisis. The candidate for governor of Virginia said, you are the true heroes of the crisis. Guy Benson says schools were closed for a year. 
So, yeah, they were teaching from home. Uh, Rich Lowry points out anyone who wants Virginia schools to put the interests of children and parents first has to hope McAuliffe gets the stinging rebuke he deserves next Tuesday. And by the way, that's when the... uh, when the vote will be cast in that race. Loudoun County requires parents to sign an NDA-like form in order to view critical race theory uh, style curriculum. So apparently they're not entitled to see what their children are um, are studying. Uh, so a non-disclosure agreement has to be uh, signed. So you may read and learn about it, but you can't talk about it to anybody. What on earth is in the curriculum that has to be so secretive and yet is taught freely and openly to Impressionable young people, one wonders. Well, parents of Loudoun County Public School students have been asked to sign a type of non-disclosure agreement to view a curriculum connected to a group known to push critical race theory. The NDA is required to be signed by parents who want to review the second step curriculum. Parents are required to acknowledge that the presentation of the material is not a public event and that copying, broadcasting or recording of any kind is prohibited. Wow. Well, LCPS spent about $7,700 becoming a licensed member of the Second Step program, a a branch of the Committee for Children, a progressive nonprofit. Second Step's curriculum includes addressing anti-racism, a term coined by author and activist Ibram X. uh, Kendi, who wrote the book How to Be an Anti-Racist. It also provides a common language to create lasting systemic a change. The Daily Signal points out a Utah music teacher who resigned her position with the Draper um, Draper Park Middle School uh, after being required to teach Second Steps SEL programming uh, gives a public brief insight into the curriculum. The teacher, Sam Crowley, said in his resignation that he could not in good conscience present material that teaches students that their parents are roadblocks to their goals, material which uh, contains propaganda and encourages students to become Activist, And you, too, as a parent, can know all about that in this particular school district. You just can't repeat what you have read. Well, another in-and-out location is closed for not following vaccine mandates. The Contra Costa Environmental Health Department closed in-and-out Pleasant Hill in October, the 26th to be precise, because employees were failing to check customers' vaccination status against COVID-19. Uh, they were supposed to be um, deputies of the state to make these checks. Well, the burger restaurant uh, was reportedly fined four times, totaling $1,750 in recent weeks for the same health uh, order violation, according to health officials. Contra Costa Environmental Health suspended the restaurant's food permit because the business was not in compliance with state and local health regulations. Pleasant Hill in and out isn't the only location in the Bay Area dealing with public health violations. Pinole and San Ramon have also received notices of violation for the same health order violation. And on Monday, the San Ramon location received a 250 notice of fine. Now, shouldn't they be paying them to assign uh, personnel that they're responsible to pay to do the state's business? I mean, should they be fining or should they be paying the restaurant for the service that they are requiring them to provide for the general public? Anyway, President Biden says Trump 24 times while he's stumping for Terry McAuliffe. Trump, of course, is not on the ballot. Clearly, they're struggling to run in favor of McAuliffe or against Youngkin. They're also trying out uh, the race card against Youngkin. Meanwhile, McAuliffe keeps inflating COVID numbers, as I mentioned earlier. Well, Portland is offering bereavement leave to city employees who have had abortions. Bereavement leave. Now, what? why would they be bereaved? We're being told that this is the best thing uh, to slice bread when you can terminate a pregnancy 
at will for any reason at any time. Uh, They can take three days off after an abortion. The story is just five sentences long and leaves out some big questions like, what is there to bereave unless they admit a baby has died? We live in a very peculiar and confused age. Well, Travis Tritt calls out the media for lies, saying he was booed. From his tweet, exposing more media lies, sure sounds like more than a smattering of applause when I was introduced Saturday night. No booing either. Then he proves his point with a video of him introducing, uh, introduced rather to sing the national anthem. One story reported individuals who attended the game tweeted that Tritt uh, was met with a smattering of boos. Apparently wasn't the case if you believe the actual video. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Dr. Gregory Jans. His book is titled So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. It's a very difficult subject, uh, but he covers it in a way that not only helps identify someone who is struggling, but gives some tremendous advice on how to uh, approach that individual to provide some real constructive help. So that's coming up in the second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the FBI joined obstructionist Nancy Pelosi in blocking the GOP from investigating the January 6th event at the Capitol. The Democrats are doing so with a couple of uh, Republicans thrown in. Senate Democrats unveiled a plan for a new tax on billionaires. It hasn't gone so well. Thus far, email shows the Biden administration ordered Afghanistan evacuation flights to be filled with unvetted refugees, at least giving the the appearance that um, lots of folks who should be uh, evacuated were. The Pentagon confirmed nearly 450 Americans are still in the country. The Islamic State in Afghanistan could be able to attack the U.S. in six months, according to a military specialist. Well, shippers will be fined for leaving their cargo at Los Angeles ports. The ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles will begin charging shipping carriers a surcharge to store their containers in an effort to clear a backlog that threatens to derail the entire supply chain. For the past 20 years, the Los Angeles area has been the busiest shipping port in the Western Hemisphere. August home prices jumped by a year-to-year record of 19.9%, and Florida has the fastest job growth rate in the nation, significantly faster than the national average. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed an integrity bill into law banning biological males from female sports in schools. Ohio, Missouri and Pennsylvania have left the National School Board Association over their letter likening parents to domestic terrorists. And the largest New York City police union has been sued over the vaccine mandate. A teenager in Houston charged with three counts of murder has been released on bond and allowed to attend school and church. Let's hope. Church does some good. A customer surprised um, to find that Pop-Tarts are not a health food has filed a lawsuit over the lack of strawberries. That's actually a true, true, true story. Did you, Chris, did you ever think Pop-Tarts were a health food? I'm, I'm guessing yes. not. I do believe. <laughs> you and still I, believe. I still believe. I had one this morning. So. <laughs> you look healthy to me. Elon Musk rips uh, Democrats' tax plan that could slap him with a $10 billion annual bill. 
Well, on this day in history, 1789, the first of the Federalist Papers, a series of essays calling for ratification of the United States Constitution, is published. 1904, the first rapid transit subway, the IRT, is inaugurated in New York City. 1954, U.S. Air Force Colonel Benjamin O. Davis Jr. is prompted to, or rather promoted to, Brigadier General, the first black officer to achieve that rank in the U.S. Air Force, 1954. Also in 1954, Walt Disney's first television program titled Disneyland after the yet-to-be-completed theme park premieres on ABC. 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a U-2 reconnaissance aircraft is shot down while flying over Cuba, killing the pilot, U.S. Air Force Major Rudolf Anderson, Jr. 1978, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin are named winners of the Nobel Peace Prize for their progress toward achieving a Middle East Accord. That was 1978. 1995, a sniper kills one soldier and wounds 18 others at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Paratrooper William Krutzner uh, would be convicted in the shootings and condemned to death. The sentence would later be commuted to life in prison. 2018, a gunman shoots and kills 11 congregants and wounds six others at a Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue in the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history. Authorities would say the suspect, Robert Bowers, raged against Jews during and after the rampage. And finally, on this day in history, also in 2018, hundreds of Mexican federal officers carry plastic shields, block a Central American caravan from advancing toward the United States after several thousand migrants turned down the chance to apply for refugee status in Mexico and obtain a Mexican offer of benefit. Well, the House Ways and Means Committee Chair Richard Neal indicated on Wednesday that a tax proposal targeting billionaires' unrealized investment gains will be dropped from consideration in the president's spending bill, an assertion that was immediately rejected by the Senate Democrat who introduced the concept, no surprise there, introduced earlier Wednesday by Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden, our own Um, Democrat uh, senator, the proposal would uh, implement an annual tax on people with at least a billion dollars in assets or one hundred million dollars in income for three consecutive years. The tax would apply to roughly seven hundred individuals. Well, Neil noted reports that Senator Joe Manchin is opposed to the proposal and decried that other lawmakers have yet to review the plan in detail. I pointed out that the billionaire's tax uh, had 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 not been vetted by our committee, Neil said. In fact, it had not been vetted by any committee, and that will be very difficult because of its complexity. None of us is in the Democrat caucus in the House have any problem with asking billionaires for more money. That's fine, but this happened all of a sudden. Well, Neil said the uh, lawmakers were still considering other tax proposals aimed at paying for Biden's agenda, which I thought was already paid for. I mean, it didn't cost anything, so why are they looking for other tax proposals? I'm a little confused. Um, Their agenda includes a surtax on millionaires, but Senator Wyden pushed back, telling reporters it was absolutely not dropped from the uh, negotiations and that lawmakers were continuing to work with members on a resolution. One version is right. I'm not sure which. I'm not saying that it's dead. It's just put out of um, uh, the text of it, Wyden said. There's a briefing for staff tonight. I'm talking to senators and nobody has said the uh, status quo will suffice. Well, the billionaire tax was one of several proposals under consideration to help offset the costs that apparently don't exist of the uh, spending bill. Moderate Democratic Senator Kirsten Cinema uh, has opposed calls to alter the corporate tax rate. Proponents say the billionaire tax will ensure the wealthiest Americans pay their fair share 
while critics argue the plan would be divisive and too complicated to implement. Earlier in the day, Manchin referred Wyden's proposal as a very convoluted and indicated that he was wary of including it in the spending bill. I don't like it. I don't like the uh, the connotation that we're targeting different people, Manchin went on to say. So we'll see what actually happens as the negotiations continue. Well, during a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee today, Attorney General Merrick Garland confirmed that he will not dissolve the task force that he formed to investigate threats leveled by parents against school board members, despite the National School Board Association apologizing for the letter which Garland has said served as the the uh, predicate for the task force formation. Well, when asked about the task force by uh, ranking Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, Garland suggested that the body is still necessary, even though the NSBA backtracked on its original request for federal intervention to probe the potential probe and potentially prosecute parents found guilty of threatening school administrators. In its apology statement released last week, the organization also reversed its characterization of parents' protests at school board meetings as domestic terrorism. On behalf of NSBA, we regret and apologize for this letter. There was no justification for some of the language included in the letter. Now, we learned that many of the members of the National School Boards Association were outraged. They were not consulted before the letter uh, was made um, public. They were not part of the negotiations with the White House. Uh, And some have even gone so far as to withdraw from the organization. Well, the NSBA's about face came after state school board chapters all across the country distanced themselves or formally disassociated from the national group, which they say failed to consult them before issuing a memo they would have refused to endorse. In defense of his decision to keep the task force, the attorney general said the NSBA letter wasn't the only predicate for DOJ action, citing news reports detailing threats against school board members that he suggested justified intervention. Well, Republican Senator Tom Cotton rebuked this idea, however, referencing the Loudoun County student sexual assault report published by the Daily Wire, revealing that the parent of a female victim was silenced by the school board and subsequently arrested for protesting the incident at a meeting. This is shameful, Cotton said. Thank God you're not on the Supreme Court. You should resign in disgrace, referring to his role as the attorney general. At least 19 state school board groups told nonprofit parents defending education that they disagreed with the messaging of the NSBA letter, branding parents' uh, demonstrations as possible hate crimes and with the plea for federal intervention, which they argued infringed upon their constitutional authority of local school boards to manage their own public school systems. In addition, the group said the NSBA neither consulted nor informed them of its intention to send the letter to the president. Well, as of Tuesday, the Ohio, Missouri, Pennsylvania, Tennessee and Louisiana state school board groups have severed their relationship with the national organization in response to that letter and the DOJ's memo. In its letter to the NSBA, the Ohio group wrote that its departure is a direct result of the letter sent by you to President Joe Biden late last month. The NSBA demonstrated just how out of touch the National Association is with the concerns of local school boards and the principle of local control. During the hearing, Republican Senator Ben Sass questioned why Garland would not disavow his memo when so many state school board associations have rejected it, as well as cut ties with the national group. He accused the attorney general of launching a campaign against parents to politicize the DOJ. Why did the Ohio School Board Association disassociate from the national group? Sass asked. I don't know, Garland replied, because this was political hackery, Sass shot back. The senator 
reiterated that while legitimate threats should not be condoned or dismissed, local law enforcement is more than able to handle one idiot or 12 idiots at local school board meetings, end quote. But you have made it a federal issue, and I have no idea why, Sass went on to say. He then demanded that Garland report back to the House Judiciary Committee to share the findings of the task force's assessment to elucidate for Congress how big a threat parents really pose. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Take a quick break, and uh, we'll return in a few moments. Also want to remind you, coming up in our second hour, Dr. Gregory Jantz, the book So Much to Live For. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. This is October, at least for the next few days, and that means it's also Pastor Appreciation Month. And we want to make sure you nominate your pastor for the Appreciation Rest and Relaxation Getaway giveaway. Well, during this month, you can show love to your pastor when you enter the Pastor Appreciation Rest and Relaxation Getaway giveaway. I like trying to say that accurately. Enter for your pastor's chance to win a seven-day getaway for two to The Cove. That's the ministry, of course, of the Billy Graham Association in North Carolina. It includes airfare and meals, a $500 Visa gift card, and more. You can show your pastor you love and appreciate the work that they do for the hard work that they do on a daily basis. Enter to win at kpdq.com. I would encourage you to do that. I don't know right about now. Well, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, is about to require 80 million working Americans to get vaccinated. You may be among them. There's just one catch. OSHA lacks the legal authority to impose a vaccine mandate. While declaring that his uh, patience was wearing thin with the unvaccinated Americans, the president on the 9th of last month announced that OSHA would require companies with at least 100 employees to mandate that workers either get vaccinated or submit to weekly COVID-19 tests. So at least there was an option. Well, OSHA sent a draft mandate to the White House on the 8th of this month. Once the White House completes its review, OSHA will issue the order and then get sued. In fact, I think there are already suits pending. Well, as uh, we detail in the, um, uh, the, the legal analysis, the courts will almost certainly strike down the OSHA vaccine mandate. Of course, by the time they get to it, it may be too late. Congress did not place vaccines within OSHA's purview. OSHA is established the, establishing rather the vaccine mandate through an emergency temporary standard. This highly unusual process allows OSHA to bypass public notice and comment. Federal agencies, including OSHA, typically must submit major rules to public scrutiny before finalizing them. Well, to take the emergency temporary standard shortcut, the agency must persuade a court that workers are in grave danger and that it is necessary to protect them against that danger. Well, the grave danger that an emergency temporary standard must address must come from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or new hazards. A toxic substance substance rather, or agent is a poisonous element or compound. A substance or agent cannot be physically harmful because it is inflammable, explosive or um, uh, carcinogenic. I should say can be rather than cannot be. Well, the danger a virus causes, by contrast, derives from its ability to replicate within a living organism. Now, this may seem like nitpicking, but if you regard the law, this is an argument that's being made that may very well hold up in court. 
Well, Congress created OSHA to promote workplace safety. OSHA inspectors look for hazards that can potentially harm employees, such as improperly stored chemicals, inadequately lighted or ventilated workstations, a lack of protective equipment, and so on. Vaccines against viruses are an entirely different form of protection and are beyond the scope of OSHA's mandate. Well, Congress tasked the Department of Health and Human Services with determining the safety, efficacy and appropriate use of vaccines. Congress authorized the Food and Drug Administration to determine whether vaccines should be allowed in interstate commerce. It empowered the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to recommend who should receive such vaccines. Now, both agencies are within uh, HHS. OSHA resides in the Department of Labor. Congress has given neither OSHA nor the Department of Labor authority over vaccines. Now, Congress did not give HHS the authority to impose a general vaccine mandate. And while Health and Human Services has regulatory jurisdictions over vaccine, it has no power to impose a general vaccine mandate. If it had, the president would have directed HHS to tell employers to require their workforces to be immunized. Well, if Congress didn't authorize the agency it empowered to regulate vaccines to mandate their use, OCHA, which has... Um, no such power certainly lacks the authority now, If Congress meant to give an agency authority to issue a general vaccine mandate. It would have enacted a law conferring and defining that authority. Well, the U.S. has uh, suffered through smallpox, polio and a raft of other diseases, including the seasonal flu. Uh, for which vaccines are available. The federal government has never imposed a general vaccine mandate, nor has any agency claimed authority to issue such a sweeping mandate. Now, if Congress had authorized a mandate, it would not have uh, encrypted it and concealed it in an obscure subsection of the OSHA statute. Congress does not, as then Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia wrote, hide elephants in mouse holes. Well, in changing, uh, charging ahead, rather, with a legally dubious mandate, the administration has repeated a a familiar pattern. Last summer, the CDC renewed an eviction moratorium that faced certain judicial doom. The agency nevertheless issued a moratorium on the 3rd of August. The court enjoined it on the 26th of the same month. There you go again, Ronald Reagan might have said, of OSHA's vaccine mandate. Well, defenders of the mandate will note that OSHA has established standards regulating bloodborne pathogens like HIV and various forms of hepatitis. Nurses, medical technicians, and others have to follow those standards when they draw blood or start IVs, for example. Well, those are distinguishable from the proposed vaccine mandate uh, mandate in at least two ways. The first way, OSHA followed... Um, a notice and comment rulemaking process and didn't resort to any emergency temporary standard. Second, Congress took the extraordinary step of rewriting the regulation in 2001, leaving no doubt that it intended for the agency to exercise that authority. Now, the bloodborne pathogen standard requires healthcare facilities to offer free hepatitis B vaccines to employees at risk of contracting the illness from needle sticks. Healthcare workers can decline those hepatitis B vaccines. Thus, even where Congress has given OSHA authority to issue narrowly targeted standards dealing with bloodborne pathogens, the agency did not mandate that workers be immunized. In short, Congress has not given OSHA license to mandate COVID-19 vaccines. Now, lawmakers needn't prohibit OSHA from imposing a mandate that they never authorized the agency to issue in the first place. On the contrary, if Congress wants a general vaccine mandate, it must pass a law establishing one. But again, this is the second example that we're seeing um, the CDC being a one and now OSHA as well, uh, but not the CDC, the uh, housing authority that did not have the authority uh, for the eviction moratorium. 
Well, a growing migrant caravan set out early Wednesday after a day of rest on its uh, trek across southern Mexico. About 2,000 had walked out of the southern city of um, Tapachula near the Guatemala border on Saturday. While the multitude is uh, challenging um, to count, it appears significantly larger Wednesday, and its leaders estimate the size to be about 4,000. The caravan is like a magnet. It goes sucking people in as they uh, make their way from towns, um, uh, the coast of Chiapas and other places, and people are joining. But one of them is Bayron Zavala, a Nicaraguan migrant who, hearing that the caravan was advancing slowly, got on a bicycle and caught up with them uh, in Oaxaca. He um, said he would walk with them as far as God gives us the strength, if possible, continue to the United States. Without any issue, the migrants passed a customs, immigration, and military checkpoint where authorities typically seize drugs and look for human smugglers. That was not the case. Though still significantly smaller than the caravans in 2018 and 2019, this is the biggest group moving through southern Mexico since the pandemic started earlier this year. In January, a caravan left Honduras, but authorities in Guatemala broke it up. Not the case this time around. Well, China's new weapon just upped the global threat level. Peter Brooks and Andrew Harding point out it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's a Chinese fractional orbital bombardment system. Yes, a Chinese fractional orbital bombardment system armed with a hypersonic glide vehicle. It was revealed in mid-October that China had conducted two tests of this new strategic weapon system during the summer, a development that should seriously concern U.S. defense and allied officials, along with the other recent troubling developments surrounding China's nuclear weapons program revealed this year. The new Chinese strategic weapon system was reportedly boosted into low Earth orbit by a civilian space launch vehicle. The launch vehicle carrying the hypersonic glide vehicle then made a partial circumnavigation of the globe. At a specific point, the hypersonic glide vehicle, which serves as the weapon's warhead, was released from the mothership before disorbiting and entering the Earth's atmosphere en route to its terrestrial target. Well, despite missing its intended target by almost 25 miles, the test appeared to be largely a success. The fractional orbital bombardment system dates back to a Soviet weapons development program during the Cold War, which intended to launch a nuclear warhead into outer space before raining it down on its enemies. The program was eventually abandoned in favor of submarine-launched ballistic missiles based on this Soviet concept and improved upon with the addition of a cutting-edge hypersonic glide vehicle, The Chinese fractional orbital bombardment system poses a unique threat. I don't have time to go into that threat, but perhaps on another day. This is a serious development. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And when we return, in addition to covering a couple of additional stories, we're going to hear from Dr. Gregory Jans. So much to live for is the title of his book. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you uh, with us. Uh, later in this hour, we're going to hear a classic interview with Dr. Gregory Jantz. His book is So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. It's an excellent resource for those who care or are concerned that that's a possibility. So that's coming up. In the next couple of segments, well, I read with interest an article that was published by the Associated Press. Sarah Klein was the author, and they were characterizing the nature of Portland these days, a dangerous time. They're referring to 
what things are like here now. Portland, Oregon sees record homicides. And she writes, it was nearly last call on a Friday when Jacob Eli Knight Vasquez went to get a drink across the street from the tavern where he worked in northwest Portland, an area with a thriving dining scene where citygoers enjoy laid back eateries, international cuisines and cozy cafes right here in Portland. The 34-year-old had been at the pizza bar only a short time when shots rang out. He was struck by a stray bullet and died at the scene. His killing in late September was one of the 67 homicides this year in Portland, which has surpassed its previous full-year record of 66 in 1987. And with more than two months remaining in the year, Portland will likely shatter its previous high mark. In a metropolis racked with gun violence, gang violence, fear and frustration have settled over Portland as stories like Vasquez make some wary to go out at night. People should be leery because this is a dangerous time. Lionel Irving, who's a longtime Portland resident and a gang outreach worker, makes the point. Portland's police department is struggling to keep up with an acute staffing shortage and budget cuts. Now the liberal Pacific Northwest city is implementing novel solutions aimed at improving safety, including adding traffic barrels to prevent drive-by shootings and suspending minor traffic stops so officers can focus on immediate threats. Now we have um, one of those barrels on a side street in my neighborhood. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It says uh, there are signs all around and it, it obstructs traffic uh, that this is for local travel only. Well, it's a side street. It doesn't go anywhere where you can't get to Canada by going down this side street. It's utterly ridiculous. And every once in a while, a neighbor will get out of the car and move the uh, the can. I'm not sure what they think they're accomplishing aside from irking those who live in these neighborhoods. But anyway, that's one of the creative things. These traffic barrels. And it's supposed to prevent drive-by shootings and suspend minor traffic stops so officers can focus on immediate threats. But critics say Oregon's largest city, which is Portland, where the population has grown by nearly 50 percent to more than 650,000 over the past few decades, is flailing. And as a resident of Portland, I would have to agree. Let's please untie the hands of our law enforcement officers. Vasquez's brother-in-law, Don Osborne, said outside the business where his brother-in-law was slain. I believe if the proper tools were in place for our law enforcement officers, this wouldn't ever have happened. Well, so far this year, Portland has had more than a thousand shootings. At least 314 people have been injured by bullets and firearms have accounted for three quarters of homicides. Police attribute much of the gunfire to gangs, fights and retaliation killings, but they're also affecting bystanders. Nine-year-old Hadar Kedem recently, uh, told city leaders about a dangerously close call when she was caught in gunfire earlier this year, nine years old. Hadar has been uh, playing with her father, or rather had been playing with her father, brother, and a dog at a northeast Portland park when a group of people in ski masks started shooting. Hadar and her family drove for a, a doe for cover behind a metal equipment bin. One bullet landed within feet of the fourth grader. I know that... Uh, not only do I want change, but everyone wants change, the nine-year-old said during a city council meeting last month. I want to feel safe. Well, she's echoing the sentiments of many Portland residents. Well, nationally, homicides increased by nearly 30 percent from 2019 to 2020 based on FBI data. In Portland, however, deadly violence, which has been exacerbated by the pandemic, is increasing at a faster rate than nearly all major cities with an 83% increase in homicide this uh, past year. 
Portland has had more homicides in 2021 than some larger cities, including San Francisco, and twice as many slayings as its larger neighbor, Seattle. Other hard-hit western cities include uh, the Albuquerque, New Mexico metro areas, uh, which is about 679,000 residents and has had a record 97 homicides this year. Well, Portland police have struggled to quell the violence for uh, with a force of 128 offers, officers below its authorized strength. Since August of last year, about 200 officers have left the department. Many in their exit interviews cited low morale, lack of support from city officials and burnout from months of racial justice protests, which often ended in plumes of tear gas before largely dying down last fall, largely but not entirely. We're running on fumes, police officers are saying. Daryl Turner, who's the executive director of Portland's police union, points out there's no way we can investigate thoroughly and correctly all these shootings. They don't have the resources and they don't have the support. Well, Turner says the city needs to hire 840 officers over the next five years to implement proper community policing and keep Portland safe. How likely is that to happen? Not likely. Besides staffing, Turner said the increase in violence is directly related to budget cuts. With looming calls to defund the police, city leaders slashed $27 million from the police budget last year. $11 million due to the pandemic caused a budget crisis, a decision that Turner says has cost lives. Officials also disbanded a specialized unit focused on curbing gun violence, which long faced criticism for disproportionately targeting people of color. However, the city council has approved the creation of a new team of officers to address gun violence set to launch in November, but with no additional funds. Good luck with that. Insufficient manpower and money have forced officials to implement non-traditional ideas in an attempt to hinder gun violence. I mean, where are the social workers? We were told that they would replace police officers and apparently talk people off the ledge while they're holding a gun. More traffic barrels were installed this month in a southeast Portland neighborhood plagued by shootings, some linked to high-speed drivers. I know I feel a lot safer. City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty said they hope to slow activity at gun violence hotspots and make it harder to both commit a crime and get away with it. Well, committing a crime seems fairly easy at this point. Getting away with it seems inevitable. This is an all-hands-on-deck situation where government needs to dig deep Think creatively, Hardesty goes on to say, from police to community-based organizations to infrastructure design, we all have a role to play in this emergency. I would add to that voting and remembering those who have um, defunded the police and defanged law enforcement in the city of Portland. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler announced in June that officers uh, are no longer being directed to stop drivers for low-level traffic violations so you can feel safer on the roads. Wheeler and the police chief, uh, Chuck Lovell, said that this was a response to data showing a disproportionate impact on black drivers, but also because the city doesn't have enough officers. You know, I really don't care if you're Asian or African-American or Caucasian or anything in between. If you're breaking the law, I would like to think uh, that you wouldn't be given a pass just because you fall into a particular group. I'm an African-American woman. If I'm speeding Pull me over. If I'm engaged in some kind of activity that's unlawful, hold me accountable. I mean, the implications to me are just staggering. Well, experts, police and residents say these measures aren't nearly enough to counter the most violent year in the city's modern history. And I would certainly agree it's not nearly enough. 
This past year has shattered anything that I've ever witnessed. That's what Irving, the outreach worker, said, and a former gang member. He said he doesn't believe gun violence will slow unless more officers patrol the streets and a specialized gun violence unit is created or recreated in this case. Investments also are needed for community-based organizations that help at-risk youth. Four cultural institutions in Portland's Old Town, Chinatown neighborhood recently sent a letter to officials demanding immediate action to keep visitors, staff and volunteers safe. Well, the increasing violence and pleas for cities to do more have compelled some areas to switch from defunding police departments to restoring funding. Portions of police budgets are also being restored around the U.S., there were massive budget cuts for the departments such as Los Angeles and New York with the nationwide protests over the murder of George Floyd last year. The local leaders have approved reviving some funding. And by the way, minority communities are disproportionately impacted by the absence of police. In Portland, there's money available for public safety in the form of a $60 million general fund excess balance. I'm not sure how far that will go in addressing the problem. The city council can use half the money. That's $30 million which came from business taxes last year and was far more than anticipated. However, it wants. Whether a significant portion will go to the police bureau has not yet been determined, given the makeup of the city council and the status of the mayor, who has admitted the mistake uh, that has been made. We'll see what actually happens. We have to realize that everybody has a role from community members to police departments. Serving says no one, uh, no one entity is going to solve Gun violence. Yes, but you have to have personnel and funding for that personnel. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Dr. Gregory Jans, his book, So Much to Live For. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, and its rates increased by 33 percent between 1999 and 2019. That's pre-pandemic. Yet that statistic doesn't include the number of Americans who thought about or attempted suicide. And according to Mental Health America, more than 10.3 million U.S. adults have had serious suicidal thoughts. So many people are silently hurting. Well, today we're going to talk with um, one of my favorite authors, Dr. Gregory Jansen. His latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. Dr. Jansen, uh, Jans rather, is a popular speaker and an award-winning author of many books, including Healing the Scars of Emotional Abuse, Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, and overcoming anxiety, worry, and fear. He is the founder of the Center, A Place of Hope, which is a strategic title that really reflects um, the heart of the work that he does in the state of Washington. Again, he joins us today to talk about his book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope for Someone Considering Suicide. Dr. Jans, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's just plain a tough topic to talk about, but it is one, one we need to address. Well, you're absolutely right, and I take I appreciate the fact that you've taken time in your professional capacity to provide a resource for those of us who care about others who struggle, and those who are struggling can also benefit from your writing. Tell us a bit about this new project, So Much to Live For, why you felt the time was right uh, to write this particular book now. Well, Georgine, it's like I never thought I would do a book on suicide. It was just not on my radar until I began to see what's going on. Mm. And since the, the last two years, we've seen a 
Well, a frightening increase in suicide attempts and suicides. Um, I looked at the 12 to 17-year-old uh, age range, and we uh, know that it is now the number two um, killer is suicide, uh, the reason for death. And that's, uh, just to say that is, is sounds strange, 12 to 17 uh, suicide is the second leading cause mm. of death. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one wonders what role social media plays. You've actually written on the subject. Can you tell us if that plays a significant role uh, or an uh, outsized role in uh, suicide contemplation and ultimately suicide among this young age group? Well, what we know is that it's a huge influence. We know anytime you have uh, the amount of social media that kids are immersed in. And, and you know, it kind of digitizes the brain, puts you in a, a, a daze, and, and people are what, uh, dro- uh, doom scrolling now, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, and, and we're being filled with so much negative. That's what happens with the social media. Kids are um, either uh, comparing themselves, feeling cyberbullied. Uh, it, it's not a real pleasant world to spend much time in. Uh, we know, and there's been some good studies that have shown, if you're already struggling with some depression and anxiety, uh, social media will just increase it. So um, this is what's happening with our kids. Last year, we had the highest academic failure rate ever. Mm. So this, the uh, online learning, the virtual learning did not work for our kids. So, And we have a generation, and I'm making some generalities, but uh, where they feel... Um, apathy, hopelessness about the future. Uh, We have uh, addictions dropping to younger ages. I mean, if we even look at uh, pornography on the Internet, age nine is the average age to exposure uh, to pornography on the Internet. So uh, what's happening to our kids is of huge concern. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the statistics, and I made a brief reference to at least some of the statistics about suicide, they're staggering. Can you share some of them with us to put into perspective how serious this issue is and how those of us who care about those who struggle uh, need to recognize that we can play some role in uh, in helping those who struggle? We really can. And it's something that we we don't need to shy away from as awkward as having a conversation around suicide is, that's really what we need to do. If you have somebody in your life that you're concerned about, uh, you know, one of the myths is, well, if I use the word suicide, they will, um, you know, give them ideas. And actually the opposite's true. You may be opening a door of opportunity for uh, discussion with a person that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And, you know, saying to a person, I love and care about you, and, you know, you've had some struggles here. Have you ever thought about harming yourself or killing yourself? Getting, opening up that conversation could be a lifesaver as a starting point. Well, in fact, your book is dedicated to those who struggle Uh, but also to those who care about them, giving real clear direction on what can I do. I think that's one of the the largest frustrations that onlookers have. Is there anything I can do? Should I address it head on? And your book provides some very practical, thoughtful ways uh, that we can express our concern in a way that's constructive. And we can do that. First of all, um, if a person's really struggling, 
And, you know, we've been, we've all kind of come through the last two years, I think it'd be fair to say chronic stress. It hasn't gone away. And uh, there's a lot of distrust out there. Um, Who or what do I believe? People are probably oversaturating themselves with news and information, and and the confusion is at all-time high. So we have a lot of fear and anxiety, plus we have... uh, an unknown future. The future seems uh, unknown and people are very anxious. When we live with that state for a while, um, it's for some, it's just pushing them over to this despair. And to have despair means I feel hopeless, I feel helpless, and you start to have really irrational thinking. And so uh, when we have irrational thinking, our judgment's poor, we're more impulsive, and that's part of what happens. So let's look at, is there addiction? Is there something we need to do to help with the anxieties? Um, But we want to keep people off of that edge of despair. You, uh, in your practice, as well as in the book, really emphasize the notion of hope. And you uh, reference the scripture in Jeremiah that's familiar to many of us. How important is hope in uh, trying to communicate with or understand a friend or family member who's struggling with thoughts of ending their life? When I think about hope, for me, that comes when we, um, there's some faith required, but it also comes when we put together a plan and a plan of hope. And so when you're in this mode and your thinking's not clear and you feel a lot of despair, you're not really able to see that or believe it or or really create a plan. So part of what I believe in hope, and uh, by the way, this is our 38th year uh, at the center of Place of Hope. So I have seen, of course, we work with folks from all over the country. I have seen some situations on the kind of the looking at it go, this looks pretty hopeless. But I have seen lives redeemed. I have people who have had a lot of suicide struggle there is a turning point, or there can be, mm-hmm. where you go, you know what, that's really behind me, and I am so, so glad I'm alive. And so that's what I believe, but sometimes we really need help uh, because we're not thinking clearly, um, we don't see that, and we need somebody to come alongside us and really begin to speak truth uh, to us. Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on 38 years. That is considerable. Isn't that, it that is. sounds funny to say that, but it's true. <laughs> well, you opened the book talking about the intersection of four words that wouldn't necessarily be thought to go together. Tell us about how these four words are linked. Future, depression, hope, and suicide. Yes. Well, future. Uh, we do have a promise, and you you shared the Jeremiah twenty nine eleven that says, uh, that the Lord has promised us a future and a hope. Well, um, when we're in a deep, dark despair and, and depression, we don't see that hope. And, you know, there's fear has a spiritual side to it, by the way. If we're full of fear and anxiety, it's like there's a fear stronghold. And uh, fear causes us to really... Um, think irrationally, fear distorts reality, anxiety distorts reality. So when I think about a future, okay, we've got to have a plan for anxiety. We've got to have a plan for depression. How am I going to manage these things that are really difficult uh, from a place of a future that has hope? And so when I, when I look at this, okay, hope really does come when I have a plan. And Jeremiah twenty nine eleven says, 
for the plans I have for you. Okay, plans. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, we may need a counselor. We may need to get some intensive type help to come alongside us and to really help us with that piece. Um, sometimes if there's addiction in our life, uh, you know, that's bringing us down more. Uh, maybe there's past trauma, uh, but maybe there's something that's happened that you feel like, man, I'm, I'm defective or I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, able to see any different kind of future or any healing. So, and I just want to acknowledge there's many folks that feel like, oh, that's true. Um, this doesn't really apply to me because that's, that's kind of those lies we begin to tell ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with award-winning author and popular speaker, Dr. Gregory Jans. He equips readers in his latest book, So Much to Live For, to step up and speak out to those who may be considering suicide. In his new book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. And I think many of us have experienced the loss of a friend or loved one. We maybe had no idea they were contemplating suicide, and yet... Uh, it occurred. And so this is such an important resource uh, to consider what role might I play in helping come alongside someone who is struggling. Now, statistically, some people are more vulnerable to suicide than others. Who are those people? And help us kind of understand um, sort of the background, if you will. Yes, there are some that are more vulnerable. And this uh, actually is, is broadening a bit since we've all walked through a couple of years of pandemic and epidemics of various sorts. So uh, people are worn out. But there is this age group I mentioned of 12 to 17 we're particularly concerned about. But there's some other age groups. We know that for um, uh, teenage girls, um, their numbers have gone higher than we've ever seen Mm. before. So teenage girls. Uh, The other we want to look at is uh, we're seeing more men, kind of 50 and above, uh, where suicide rates have really increased. Um, we're also seeing situations that sometimes are hard to determine. Maybe a person's struggling with addiction and there was an overdose uh, where we don't know, was, was this intentional or was it not? And so there, to have really, really accurate numbers, it's, it's kind of difficult to know. But um, there are those that are more vulnerable. Uh, past trauma, we know that childhood sexual abuse uh, could be in the picture for many. Uh, emotional abuse. Uh, I wrote a book on emotional abuse where we looked at what's the effects of emotional abuse. Um, so that would fit under the heading of trauma. Um, we know that there are those that uh, may have a physical issue, maybe chronic pain, um, that they've struggled with for many years and it seems like um, they lose because of that pain, it distorts reality and they become more suicidal. We're Those talk- are just a few of the groups. 
Yeah, yeah. We're talking with uh, Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. The first half of your book really focuses on understanding your loved one's desperate struggle, and that is one of our greatest challenges as an onlooker. Um, What are some common, or I should say, what are the warning signs that someone may be considering suicide? Are there things that we uh, can look to as um, a way of, of determining there may be a problem? Yes, um, and there are times where situations, they may be talking about suicide or talking about death or dropping us cues like, well, it'd be better off if I wasn't even around or uh, nobody loves me, nobody will miss me. And so they're kind of talking about it uh, in, in code a little bit. So the, those are kind of cries for help. Um, if there's been significant loss in their life, maybe they've even academic failure for our kids or a loss of a relationship. You may see things like isolating, uh, disconnecting from normal uh, peer group activities. Um, We may see an increase in um, addiction. Sometimes online, uh, people will give us cues online about what they're thinking. Now, Suddenly, for a person to change their mood, it's like, you know, they're really, really struggling, and then all of a sudden, they seem everything seems great. You go, wow, what's going on there? Sometimes when a person has made a decision to end their life, they feel a relief. Mm. And you'll start to notice, the start to, um, maybe it seems like they're giving things away, putting affairs in order. Um, saying goodbye kind of to people and you begin to see this pattern. It's really not unusual for somebody who took their life to go, well, seemed like he was doing so well all of a sudden. So those are some of the things that can happen. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you write about that in So Much to Live For. Now, what are some of the common myths or misconceptions about suicide? Well, one of the biggest ones really is if I talk about it, um, I will uh, give them ideas. And the opposite is true. That's really where we open up an opportunity uh, to really hear from the person. Um, we also, and, and just listening to them, so often we want to, okay, if you just do this or uh, if you react to what they're saying, you're kidding me. You're thought about taking your life, and, and it feels like a judgment. Uh, we, they just need us to listen to them, and uh, so that's you know that's one of the myths. It's the biggest one. If I say anything, um, I may give them ideas. Um, you know, the, another one is, um, and this is one that comes up. Well, if a person's had a lot of suicidal thoughts, uh, they're always going to stay that way. No, and so what we do is we tend to take. We tend to lessen, okay, it's just the way they are. They're never going to really do it. Um, and so we need to remember that one of the myths is somebody that may have suicidal thoughts does not stay that way, they don't, or they don't have to stay that way. So, The second part of your book um, focuses on those who have loved ones who are struggling, helping your loved one move beyond crisis and toward wellness, which is such a hopeful thought that a person who... Um, is thinking about or has contemplated, which is the same thing, or has attempted suicide, 
um, can move past that to a more hopeful uh, future and toward wellness. Again, it's so encouraging. I've had two friends commit suicide that came as a complete shock, and I have Mm -hmm. one now who has made reference to um, the possibility of ending uh, their life. So this is so important to give hope to the person who wants to help and to give them the resource to to be able to do that. Absolutely. And this is one of those um, books you go, you know, it, at first it made me go, this may be a hard book to buy because it's on suicide. Are you kidding me? Um, this is something that all of us need to have more education about. Like I said, uh, though we've dealt with situations through the years, I never knew or thought or had planned that I would ever do a book on this topic mm-hmm. until I saw the incredible need. And uh, now I'm just, I want to save lives. And each of us can do that. You know, so a person who feels suicidal, sometimes it's important just to be there. Ask yeah. questions, be with them. Uh, don't worry about answers. It's not about trying to create answers. Um, probably gently uh, helping them get to the right professional uh, help, um, making sure that they're safe. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't, a person that's really suicidal, we don't leave them alone. Uh, but we want to make sure they get the right kind of help um, and stay their friends. Like, okay, so they went into this program and they're gonna they're getting help, but stay their friend, follow up with them, be in relationship. Uh, don't let what they're struggling with scare you away. Yeah, I think one of the fears that uh, that we have as onlookers or family members and friends is that if we fail to prevent a suicide we will then take some responsibility for the outcome. Can you speak to that? Because I think that fear prevents some people from entering into the life of someone who's struggling. Yes. Um, A lot of times you go, well, what if I would have done something differently? Mm -hmm. Um, What if I could have really helped them? Or sometimes there is, I wish I would have. So those are all statements of regret. A lot of times, uh, we need to come to a place of understanding we, we cannot control what another person does. We can offer help, hope, and resources and be there, but um, we need to remember, as difficult as it is, um, that people make their own decisions, and some of this is so sneaky, uh, planned, that that you you did do all you could with what information you had. Yeah. And that's that's important to remember that. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. We'll be back in just a moment to wrap up our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Want to remind you that tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Laura Harris-Smith. She's the author of Give It to God and Go to Bed, Stress Less, Sleep Better, and Dream More. That's coming up tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in keeping with the Biden administration's newly announced gender inclusivity strategy, the State Department has printed its first gender-neutral passport 
marked with an X designation. Now, the State Department confirmed the uh, the news on Wednesday, although the identity of the person to whom the passport was issued was not revealed. Well, the U.S. Special Diplomatic Envoy for LGBTQ Rights, Jessica Stern, told the Associated Press that the new option for the document reflects the... Um, lived reality that increasingly more people identify with a gender different than the one they were assigned at birth. And they're certainly entitled to identify with a different gender, but for the purposes of international travel and identification, wouldn't you want information that accurately reflects who and what the person is? Uh, How they choose to live their lives is a separate issue, it would seem to me. Anyway, when a person obtains identity documents that reflect their true identity, Now, only in a bizarro world would one's true identity be the opposite of what their true identity actually is and embraced by the state. This is absurd. Again, quoting from Stern, when a person obtains identity documents that reflect their true identity, they live with greater dignity and respect. In June, the State Department said a third gender market Uh, marker rather, could be available for applicants to elect to choose on their passport as part of the effort to make the document more inclusive to non-binary, intersex, and gender non-conforming people. A department official told AP that the proposal, which would require large technological changes to the database, uh, would be under consideration and review for a significant amount of time pending approval from the Office of Management and Budget. Now, it seems to me the reason that information is part of the passport is so that you can identify someone with certainty. This is a male who comes from here. This is the, the number of the passport and so on. If you add fiction to that, I mean, someone could choose to be one thing and choose to be another or dress in a different it just seems very confusing to me but perhaps i'm just naive about how how all of this uh, works while prior to the department's actions applicants had to present medical papers to verify the biological sex uh, would uh, be displayed on the passport now applicants can select the gender of their preference We see this as a way of affirming and uplifting the human rights of trans and intersex and gender nonconforming and non-binary people everywhere, Stern went on to say. It has the potential to be very confusing, however, if you're trying to locate an individual whose actual uh, sex is nowhere to be found on the passport. Well, the Biden administration has put forth a national strategy on gender equity and equality that outlines the ways in which this administration plans to even the score between men and women, minorities and LGBTQ plus individuals. The 42 page plan ostensibly seeks to address a litany of issues it declares are um, systemic in nature, but it really only reiterates the regular talking points we're tired of hearing. Well, from those on the left. Well, some of these include equal pay for women, females in military combat roles, allowing biological men into women's private spaces, taking swift actions against any allegation of sexual violence, especially on college campuses, increasing abortion rights and so much more. Well, these strategies have been proven again and again to hurt more than they help. And I guarantee that will be the legacy moving forward. Now, while this gender strategy purports to help women, it absolutely does not. One section makes favorable reference to the Equal Rights Amendment or the ERA, which would allow men claiming to be women to freely enter women's spaces regardless of state law. As uh, we already know, this has been a disaster for some women. States like California have been allowing men claiming to be transgender to transfer to women's prisons. This has resulted in horrific rapes and other such atrocities. Then there are um, 
more high-profile stories, like the predator who was allowed in the women's locker room at um, We Spa or the Loudoun County, Virginia case, wherein a so-called gender-fluid male student um, raped a girl in the girl's bathroom. Thankfully, that boy was found guilty of his egregious crime. But if, if uh, this policy is allowed to continue, we're only going to see more cases of abuse and horrors perpetrated against women, all in the name of protecting women. Well, the national gender strategy also harms men. It takes away due process for males accused of rape. It does so by enshrining kangaroo courts that essentially make it well uh, nigh impossible for male students to defend themselves if accused of rape, sexual assault, sexual battery, or sexual coercion. That is, unless the man happens to be self-identified as a woman. Well, Biden's gender strategy also seeks to increase educational opportunities for women at the expense of their male cohorts. A recent study showed that women already make up 60 percent of college students. So creating more opportunities for women in education over men would not uh, even the score. It would, however, heavily favor women at men's expense. Now, the world needs both educated men and women. Suffice it to say, Biden's plan won't fix any of that or other problems. Woke government officials stepping in and trying to fix what they see is uh, inequity. causes more societal problems than it solves. It's not equitable to take from men to give to women. It's not equitable to allow fluidity on absolutes such as gender or when uh, life begins and other absolutes such as sex, uh, race, uh, claiming to be fluid would trigger accusations of insanity. So fluidity is relative in and of itself. There's only one truth. The only two sexes are male and female, and those are determined at birth. Life begins its conception. Your age is according to your birthday. Your race is according to your birth parents. Fudging the lines of these truths makes for a confused and volatile culture such as we are seeing today. We'll note uh, not content to send just our country down the drain. This gender strategy would encompass the world. Yet Africa rejects abortion. The Taliban are not interested in women's rights or human rights, for that matter. Uh, Isn't foisting these ideas on other cultures a form of colonialism, which we're all supposed to be opposed to? Uh, Isn't it that oppression, according to these woke bureaucrats and politicians? But even that, we find, is relative. If you are imposing what are uh, deemed superior views on a inferior people, then that colonialism is, in fact, charitable. On the other hand, um, there are certain ideas that are just intolerable altogether. Well, this national strategy, or maybe tragedy is a better word, is yet another example of an authoritarian power grab in the name of helping the oppressed. Being a woman and an African-American, I am not impressed, nor do I embrace this folly. Once again, I want to remind you tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Laura Harris Smith. She's the author of Give It to God and Go to Bed. I like that idea. Stress less, sleep better and dream more. That's coming up tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program and James Blinn for engineering today's program. Double duty. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.